Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, you are in, I trust, for a treat today <laughs> in a number of accounts. Um, we are going to be talking with Kenton Hall, who's the author of a new book called Bisection, A Tale of Bipolar Parenting and Twin Wrangling. And um, actually, wait, the exact title is a more or less accurate account of bipolar parenting and twin wrangling. And if you get that sort of sardonic, sardonic, ironic <laughs> twist uh, to that, then you can understand what I, what I mean by saying that I think we're in for a treat. Particularly because the author, um, in, his, in the book, is um, trying to... Um, break open our stereotypes um, of bipolar illness, also called manic depressive illness. Kenton, let me, let me stop and ask you about that right now. You know, I am, um, I, when I was training, it was just called, well, I don't know about just, but it was primarily called manic depressive illness. And um, it bothers me that um, Everybody now calls it bipolar because manic depressive illness is so much more descriptive. When you were first I, I diagnosed, think so, yeah. they... <laughs> when I when I was growing up, um, I think I just missed the cutoff point for uh, it being manic depression when I was diagnosed. <laughs> my father, who also suffered, he he was a, a manic depressive. I I, I like uh-huh. I like the idea of being a manic depressive. It has a really it, it, you can imagine in some kind of seventies drama. Uh, someone is a manic depressive. It has, it has a little bit more of a, an undertow to it. Yeah, so I mean, bipolar, it's kind of like imagining a globe or a magnet or mm. something like that. <laughs> but that's how people seem to uh, recognize it more easily these days. So why don't we start? Actually, why don't you, you just mentioned about your father. So why mm-hmm. don't we start? I mean, I always ask people um, uh, to... To go back in their history, I mean, that's my love as a psychiatrist, to um, understand uh, understand the beginnings, you know, of why someone became the way they did, whether it's a book about uh, bipolar illness or about, um, you know, anything. Why did you get interested in that subject? So mm. why don't we start with your childhood growing up in, um, as a son of a manic-depressive man, father? <laughs> I... Um, <clears throat> Beg your pardon. I, it was it was a very interesting childhood, and I use interesting in the sense of the old Chinese curse: "May you live in interesting times." Uh, in that, okay. I grew up with very very young parents, um, one with very difficult physical illnesses that she'd sort of dealt with, sort of rheumatic fever and rheumatoid arthritis. So she had been very poorly through her entire life, and one with very sort of visible mental illnesses. In that, he was at the time undiagnosed with bipolar. He was diagnosed lately, but was very erratic in his behavior. He could leap between the poles, and that made him sometimes very aggressive and um, very emotional. 
in a way that was very difficult to deal with as a child. But into the mix, mm-hmm. they were very, very strict religious people as well. So there was a lot of allowance for that aggressive behavior because they were intended to be strict, uh, not sparing the rod, etc. So it was for a young child growing up who was also sort of quite fraught emotionally. It wasn't. It was helpful to become a writer because it has given me a lifetime of material to draw on. It was not necessarily uh-huh. helpful to me as a human being. <laughs> uh huh. So, yes, so you were born in Estevan, Saskatchewan, Canada. I wasn't. And when when did you move to um, the United Kingdom? My parents were both English, so I've always had dual nationality. And when I was about 19, I had the benefit of two passports. And I decided that if I was going to run away at 19, I would do it in, in grand style and run to another country with no money and no contacts which is also a fairly bipolar thing to do since yeah. I packed the night before. Um, <laughs> I had two suitcases full of books and one suitcase full of craft dinner. That was how I took on the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. Um, wow. I, I ran. I ran, basically. I made an impulsive decision, which I'm sure, looking back now, was quite symptomatic, and just booked a tra- uh, plane ticket and left uh, because I could come he- to the United Kingdom and work because I had a passport for Britain. Um, and it was a way of running away from my family, running away from the religion, running away from sort of the things I felt had restricted me, but also because as I've sort of grown to learn over my life that those kind of impulsive decisions are kind of matched by those ideas of grandeur where you make the big decision because you're completely convinced that it's going to lead to something um, incredible. Uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always pursued artistic dreams. So fleeing to another country sort of fed into my romantic, poetical notions that I would go to England and become a great writer. Um, and look right now, I'm going, when I think about my own children who are 17 now, only two years younger than I was when I left, and I think I wouldn't trust them with a pair of roller skates, let alone moving <laughs> to another country <laughs> and living on their own in a tiny little apartment somewhere. So, yeah, it frightens the life out of me when I think how young I actually was when I did it. Uh-huh. Well, what was the final straw that made you leave? I, <laughs> I'm sure this is common to a lot of people. I had a terrible, terrible breakup, um, which, which was in part because of the person not feeling emotionally ready to deal with the level of my mental illness, which is completely understandable. And I needed a big change. Also, the biggest thing for me growing up is that I grew up in a very patriarchal, homophobic kind of religion. And I was a writer. I was reading Oscar Wilde and George Eliot, and I just couldn't rub along with those ideas that that men were somehow intrinsically better or that uh, people from the LGBTQ community were somehow inherently worse. They were like opposite to my actual belief system that was forming. And I just needed to break from all of those kind of restrictive thoughts. Uh Uh-huh. Before you left, had your father been diagnosed before you left? Like, did you know, in other words, that you were at risk for developing the same thing? He, I, he had been diagnosed not long before I left, but he decided he took his medication for a couple of weeks and never really got past the threshold of the side effects and decided he couldn't deal with the side effects. I, I, 
I'm not sure what he would have been on looking back now, but um, he just stopped taking them. And obviously, on top of his regular symptoms, you had the withdrawal from the medication and things were getting even worse. Um, so, mm. But for some reason, it hadn't really... I'd had severe depression. I'd had, unfortunately, um, a couple of suicide attempts leading up until that point. Um, and I knew... But I, had, I don't think I'd thought about it in terms of bipolar until a couple of years later when I had a very sort of substantial breakdown and was diagnosed properly in the UK. Uh-huh. So, um, well, obviously, you know, this is, um, we know now, of course, that, um, that it, uh, well, I shouldn't put words in your mouth. It seems to me from reading all of the different things that you have accomplished, and I should probably um, talk about some of them, uh, Kenton is a is a Canadian, as we said, author, now living in the UK since 19, uh, author, actor, musician, and director. Um, he uh, is a, a writer and director of a film called A Dozen Summers and a play called The Public Interest. And he was also, and this was, <laughs> this was in a manic phase, I guess, lead singer and songwriter of the band It who re- released three critically acclaimed albums between 2002 and 2010. So I guess one could, um, uh, to put everybody, all my listeners, uh, let them relax. In fact, moving to the UK, I would think, was a good decision. Is that right? I, I think so. And I think certainly for me, no matter uh, whatever else has happened that's been difficult, the fact that I came over here and had my daughters right makes everything equal. You know, you can't unpick the tapestry once you have children because any decision that you might change might remove them from existence. So that's, and that's unacceptable. But yeah, I I do think when I hear the list of things that I've done, it partially I hear all the jobs I do and think, my God, I'm determined to be poor. Um, (laughs) it's It's not like actor, writer, musician, neurosurgeon, where I might actually be making some money on the side. It's just all of the poor, poor money-making jobs I've had. So I must enjoy poverty quite a lot. I, I've always been driven to create things. I, I, lo- I do love it enough to get over the difficulty of it, and I'm really proud of what I've accomplished, despite the fact that none of it has left, led to fame and fortune. It's just led to the next thing. So there is a kind of narcotic-level mm-hmm. need that comes in when you, to make you create, despite how difficult it is. But yeah, I've done that all over here, and you know, I've, I wouldn't say I've enjoyed every minute of it because there's been some dark times along the way, but I have certainly found it fascinating the entire time. Now, are you living in London? I am about a uh, hundred or so miles north of London in a place called Leicester, which is in the Midlands of England. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've spent time in uh, in London primarily. Um, hmm. Even worked at the Maudsley Hospital, and also studied oh, wow. with Anna in Anna Freud, with Anna Freud, and in her clinic. Oh, that's so, great. Um, so yes, I I mean, if there's any place that you're going to be poor and creative, I would it would be England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it, it does lend itself well to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time in London for, for work because obviously, what, particularly when I was full time working as an actor, you just tend to gravitate that way um 
So I, I do love working down there. I'm not sure I could live in London just because it's, it, it's a bit of a place where you can drown if you don't have the right support system, I think, because it's just mm-hmm. so big. So it's a beautiful city with so much going on in it. But the rest of England is great mm-hmm. and has incredible pockets of talent. And I kind of like supporting regional talent because London gets all of the spotlight. So that's been another yes. big part of my career is kind of going and finding people like me in other places and hopefully supporting them as well. Uh-huh. So I don't want to skip over. Um, did we skip too quickly from your childhood to, uh, to London, to, to the U.K.? Um, as, I mean, as you wish, I will answer any question you choose to pose to me. <laughs> well, um, okay. Well, one of them we sort of talked about a little bit beforehand. Um, part of your growing up, and you alluded to it, was in a cult. So tell mm. us a little bit about what that was like and how that impacted you. It's a, I talk a little bit about this in the book. It's, it's quite a an unfortunate mix when you grow up in a very, very strict and very literal biblical interpretation um, cult. And it was a cult because it was very much a sort of us versus them mentality and a real genuine belief in a fiery end for the wicked and so on and so forth. But because there is such a kind of fantasy element of it, it is like living in a Lord of the Rings novel. Um, but when you're, particularly if you suffer from a mental illness where your ability to be a fantasist is increased exponentially, mm-hmm. you really mm-hmm. believe. And because your parents have told you from birth that these things are true and your brain is naturally wired to accept all manner of things, it, it's, it's a very frightening and all-encompassing sort of an isolating view of the world because you're looking, you're experiencing the things that are coming from school and from external stimuli, television, movies, books, as I was, and wondering why your internal landscape of how you've been told the universe is and the things that you're seeing and the things that you're feeling coming from outside, why they are so mismatched. And that creates a conflict mm-hmm. that I think either drives people deeper into their belief system or fractures them away from it. I, I spent a lot of uh-huh. time not, not doubting the way that someone without bipolar might of going, actually, I don't think I believe this. I, I was like, uh-huh. I don't believe this, but I want it not to be true. So maybe I'll just go to war with God. It was that kind of level of sort of uh, grandiosity and messianic complex that comes with the, uh, uh-huh. the chemical imbalance. And so I was just torn all the time between what I wanted to be true, which was a far more liberal um, humanist way of living and what I believed to be true because I had been taught that, that since birth which was a very judgmental Uh God who wanted things a certain way. And so the break, when I finally found sort of the courage to make it, had a a knock-on effect on my psyche because it meant removing huge chunks of what I'd been brought up with and enormous swaths Mm. of people that I'd been brought up with because once you're out, you're out. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. one of my first, sort of very substantial breakdowns my very early 20s came as a result of making that break and the knock-on effect it had on my relationships because I had to pretty much rebuild my social support system from scratch in a, in a very sort of fragile um, state. And so 
so you know it was it was stress related um breakdown that just led to a to a psychotic break led to sort of dealing with hospitalization and doctors and was the first time that I actually confronted the subject of medication but it was also mm-hmm. in some ways it was a very positive thing because I had been trying to put on a false face of who I was for so long and no matter how mm-hmm. beaten up my real face was underneath it it was good to finally give it an airing and start thinking about mm-hmm. writing and films and music from a sort of personal perspective rather than always against the grain of what my parents and other church members wanted me to do, which was to become a window cleaner and then knock on doors on a Saturday morning selling magazines. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, you said it was since you were 19 when you went to the UK, So that, and you had mentioned that your first break was in the UK, and, and yes, yes the early uh, 20s is the typical time for when the first break happens. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we come back, I would like you to talk about that. Let's, let's go to, first of all, what it was like um, finding yourself across the ocean and in this mm-hmm. country um, without any money and how you got by at the beginning, which in itself, of course, would have put a lot of stress on you. Um, yeah. And then what, what actually, what you were going through during this first break. So we'll, t- we'll okay. take a break of a different sort right now. And um, my guest is the very charming um, Kenton Hall, and his book, again, is called Bisection. Um, I want to make sure I get the exact, a more or less accurate account of bipolar parenting and twin wrangling. And we will get to the uh, parenting and twins (laughs) as as well. (laughs) So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, my guest today is Kenton Hall. His book is called Bisection, A More or Less Accurate Account of Bipolar Parenting and Twin Wrangling. Um, I just want to clarify something that I said before. Uh, I, I w- made a mistake. I was thinking of schizophrenia, but I, when I was saying about the first break, first break of schizophrenia is typically early 20s. First break of manic depressive illness is actually a little later, late 20s or early 30s, except for when you have um, manic depressive or bipolar illness in childhood. Actually, children and they are oftentimes not diagnosed. You know, they're given, they're called ADHD these days or ADD and, uh, or some other or, you know, um, oppositional defiant or some other diagnosis uh, because people oftentimes don't want to see that a child has bipolar or manic depressive illness. And, um, and um, Kenton was talking about how, well, go ahead. Why don't you tell me what, about your childhood and, and what we I think it's really interesting. About to hear it from that perspective because I think that's very similar to my experience is that when I look back and some of the difficulties I had as a child, although it was hard to crowbar them away from some of the real sort of things that were happening, is that I exhibited a lot of bipolar symptoms and I had very, very deep depressions and I had very sort of manic highs. But um, as a child, people are quite ready to... to say that's just what that child is like or that's just what children are like. And as I entered into mm-hmm. my teens and it became more serious and I had, I had some suicide attempts, um, bipolar was raised as a possibility, but they wanted, the Canadian doctors wanted to get me through my adolescence first before they made a sort of ruling on that because obviously teenagers can be fraught by nature, as I'm learning now that I have two of my own. Um, but uh, not to the degree that a sort of serious mental illness brings. And it wasn't until I came to the UK and had a full psychotic break that the diagnosis was laid into place. I mean, in reality, if it had been tackled earlier, I might not have had as severe a first break. But it is a difficult line, I can imagine, to walk between particularly when you're dealing with a young person, and certainly when you're dealing with the subject of medication, about how much mm-hmm. medical intervention you want to give to a young person when you're not clear exactly what they're suffering from at that point. Right, and also the label, you know, labeling yes, someone 8 years absolutely. old, 10 years, 12 years old, uh, you know, that would likely stick for the rest of their life, and if it isn't true. Um, okay, so take us into this, this first break, you're, you arrive in the UK, and what do you do? There you are with your three suitcases, books, and, well, I don't know, did you still have, you probably still didn't have food at the time that you arrived in the UK. I would imagine that was I, enough. I had, book, I had books, and I had at least half a suitcase full of boxes of craft dinner because I had heard they didn't have them in the UK. And, and being a good <laughs> North American boy, 
craft dinner with its proper radioactive orange cheese powder. It's probably why they can't sell it overseas, because I think it actually may be a chemical weapon of some kind. Um, I packed (laughs) enough to see me through my first couple of weeks in in England. Um, And my books, which I traveled everywhere with. Um, I I came to... I, I stayed with some extended members of my father's family for a little while, cousins I didn't know very well. Then I got gravitated, that was in the north of England where my father had come from, gravitated towards sort of old, old friends of my grandparents in the Midlands, again, still brushing against the sides of the religion because that was all the people I knew. And I ended up in a tiny mm-hmm. little town in a place called Derbyshire, living in a, a bedsit, which is like a one-room apartment in a house that's been separated out, um, which was filled entirely with divorced men in their 40s who didn't have their homes anymore, and me. Uh, I was mm-hmm. making £38 a week in what uh, benefits I could claim because though I was a citizen, I hadn't lived and paid into the system, and paying £50 a week, British pounds, in rent. So a lot of times I was out in the streets busking with my guitar to raise the rest of the rent. Um, So, yeah, it wasn't exactly the least stressful time. I was living on a lot of tins of things that didn't necessarily have brand labels on them. Uh, I had an electricity meter that was coin-operated, so if you ran out of coins, the lights would go out, but the gas would stay on, so I would light the rings on the oven and read by this blue firelight until I could find enough coins to switch electricity back on. Um, yeah, it was, it was like a proper, proper writer's sort of garret. I should have been, I should have been painting in there and, and drinking laudanum. Um, and, then I, and then I met a young woman who was in a similar situation to me. She had been brought up in the religion, but had kind of drifted away from it. Um, and I'd kind of drifted away from it and was trying to make a break. And I got married when I was about 20, Um, but I got married to someone who had the same background as me and therefore it wasn't as complete a break as I should have made. And we were very, Uh we were young and young and in love and uh, it made sense at the time. But as I got sicker and, and became felt like I was still, I hadn't got this sort of double self rid of it yet. It, it ended in, ended sadly in, in divorce when I was about, 23, and as I was going into a complete sort of psychotic breakdown um, that, that had sort of started sort of over the previous sort of year or two. Um, and I think the first time, I find it really difficult to describe what a psychotic break feels like because you only really kind of assess it in the rearview mirror. At the time, mm-hmm. whatever you're seeing and feeling is entirely real. It may be terrifying, it may be difficult, but it is 100% reality. You don't have this sense that, it's, that you are ill. You may have the sense mm-hmm. that you are frightened or you may have the sense that you are um, sort of in despair. Um, may, and for me, it always, it's always starts with kind of panic and a, and a level of panic that hits a pitch and then just stays there to the point where everything is, is painful, um, and a lot, and physically painful as well. I don't think sometimes that the 
the physical pain of mental illness gets discussed often enough. So depression can mm. feel like chest pain. And, you know, when I, without medication, if I spiral in, you know, to a manic state that reaches the point of psychosis, that it is like my thoughts are speeding up to the point where they burn, where they become so mm. fast where I can't hold on to them that my head actually feels like it's on fire. It can be agonizing. And all of that pain has a sort of cyclical effect of, dragging you further into the uh, the depression or the mania. Um, but in my 20s, mm-hmm. I just, I, I had made so many large changes in my life and so many outwardly bad things. I'd moved to another country. I was broke. I, my marriage had failed. I didn't really speak to my family anymore because they were, uh, and they, particularly after my divorce, because they all got together and wrote me hate mail. Um <laughs> Mm. another story um, so it was very easy to think that I, that I was just dealing with an extraordinary amount of trauma which I was and this has become a recurring theme because I had a, a terrible Dickensian childhood anyway and the mental illness to one side most of my life has been trying to unpick what is trauma that I need to address and what is symptomatic of the disorder itself um, and sometimes they mm-hmm. come out and play together and get all mixed and matched, uh, which is great fun. Uh, but at 23, I just thought I had my life had spiraled. I wasn't at, completely aware of how ill I was until I began to act so extremely out of character and out of any sense of reality that other people ensured that I got medical help. Um, and some like, of that was, like what? What, was... What was the final... I mean, there was some like, there was like suicidal what? behavior, which obviously is sort of the red letter one that people notice. But there was also a lot of the kind of grandiose attempts, you know, e- extreme spending. Um, there is, there's obviously sort of hypersexuality, which can cause you to make poor life choices. Um, and especially if you come from a very restrictive background... And that has never been a possibility before. That kind of behavior can leap to the fore. Um, and, yeah, I, I just seem to be on this self-destructive tear that almost felt, I think, to the people around me as though my life is screwed up anyway. I might as well see how far it can really go. And uh-huh. And then that started to add into, like, just, breaks where I would just break down just talking nonstop and emotional outbursts and crying and 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 having very sort of little idea of where I was. And some of that I remember the feeling of, but I've only had the report of what it appeared to be from other people. Mm-hmm. Um and mm-hmm. particularly from the relationship which was with the twins mom that I got into uh, immediately following my divorce. Um and so she Lesser uh, inherited someone on the verge of an incredible nervous breakdown, um, and then shortly after that, I sort of had my daughters. So it was a fairly there was a stretch of sort of five or six years, which pretty much combined all of the most stressful uh, things that you can imagine into again great for a writer, but you just have to survive it first. <laughs> Uh huh. Uh huh. So, um, 
So after your divorce, you you got into a relationship with a woman. Did you marry her, or you were just in a relationship with her? Uh, we were just in a relationship um, to begin with. We did marry many years later. We're now divorced, but we still speak, so <laughs> that, that, that worked out better, that one. Um, and we had um, so, twin daughters when I was 25. Huh. Um, so was she, um, was she, did she support you? I don't mean economically necessarily, but like, was she there for you when you had this first break? Um, absolutely. Um, with, you know, with the proviso that, you know, she was only 23 when we got together as well. So she had no experience of how to cope with this person who had seemed sometimes so kind of vibrant and alive and sort of driven, not knowing, nor did I know, that that was as much a symptom as the depression and the suicidal feelings and the sort of occasional sort of strange ideas and unwanted thoughts. Sometimes sometimes the high stuff gets attributed to your personality. And I was. I was a a musician. I was a, a writer. I certainly sort of was trying to enjoy this freedom of finally having loosed myself from the shackles of the religion that I'd grown up in. Um, and, I sh- and I'm sure that what was sometimes very painful for me was a lot of fun for the people around me um, because yeah. it could be funny and loud and, and life of the party, which, is, which, is, which should have been a, an alarm bell because I'm personally one of the most sort of shyest introverted people, my <laughs> core personality, but I've, I've developed this persona around it to enable me to do my job. Um, I'm much happier writing on paper than I am performing, but I also kind of love performing. Um, and I think I was performing for a long time in my life, creating a version of myself that other people could accept, using uh-huh. what might appear to be, inverted commas, crazy to other people, and making it a game, making it something that they could laugh with instead of at. Um, so I would just lean, if someone thought something I did was odd or eccentric or crazy, I would lean into it and I would say, so what? That's how I am. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times mm-hmm. the, some of those things didn't get addressed. And the more, the deeper into the arts that I got, the less people noticed because that, the, the behavior that went with it was quite usual in artistic circles. It wasn't for people to know that I was genuinely suffering. I was, uh, I was just sort of a crazy performer type. And, and for, yeah, for, mm-hmm. my, for my ex, who's the twins' mom and brilliant mom, she had to deal with trying to work that out when I couldn't explain it, and she had no experience of mental illness. We kind of had to work it out together, for better or worse. And so, um, at some point then, did you, um, were you taken to the hospital against your will, or did you go there yourself when you were in enough pain, or how did that first break happen? Um, there, the, first, the first time was, um, was a suicide attempt, um, and it was very, that one was very strange because I ran into, I think, what a lot of people run into, which was very judgmental medical professionals. Um, 
I think purely from them being human beings and seeing someone brought in by someone else who's also in crisis and clearly upset, that they were quite stern and brutal to me as being the cause of this other person's pain um, because they were obviously distraught over what had happened. And so I got a lot of that, you stupid boy, look what you've done, as they were stitching me up. Uh-huh. And, you know, you know when, when you have done something like that and you kind of come out of the fugue that led you there, you think terrible things about yourself. And the last thing that you need from the medical profession is them to underline that self-loathing for you. Um, because it just it just reinforces it. It reinforces that you are not in control of yourself, but also that you cause harm to the people that you care about. And you you begin to take that into your heart and really start to believe that about yourself. And the more that you do that, the less drive you have to try to overcome those states. You just think that's why I'm I'm just bad. And I'd spent my whole childhood being told I was just bad. I didn't need to start telling Mm. myself in my adulthood. But it turned out I was really good at it. Um, So I just ran with it for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the thing is that the overall understanding that we have of mental illness and how it can present means nothing if you really can't picture that there is a human being underneath it. Because I think for for everyone's best attempts to say, okay, I understand a little bit more about what schizophrenia is, or I understand a bit more about what bipolar is, still when confronted with a person who is dealing with one of those conditions, they equate the behavior with the person. And I can tell you from being medicated, from being in periods of small periods of remission, that I am not the person that I am when I'm symptomatic. There are aspects mm-hmm. of me in that. It's fed by that. But my core values, my core beliefs, the way that I believe that people should be treated, the things that I believe should and shouldn't be said to other people, they go out the window if I'm in a truly symptomatic place, which to me really yeah. just reinforces that mental illness is something that can warp yourself, but the self doesn't disappear and if you don't treat the person as being that core uh, person, then you're, you're going to end up reinforcing stereotypes, no matter how hard you try to understand the science of it. You have to yes, have a little absolutely. bit more imagination than that. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to take a break now, as much as uh, <laughs> I would like to imagine that we didn't, but we do. Um, my guest is Kenton Hall. His book is called Bisection, A More or Less Accurate Account of Bipolar Parenting and Twin Wrangling. And when we come back, actually, I would like to start um, at the stitching up point because that would lead one to believe or me to believe that that was cutting your wrists, I guess. Anyway, we will start from there and uh, then get to the the twins and the parenting and, and so on. Um, so stay tuned, everybody, this, uh, list, and continue to listen to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the 
experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back. I want to get right back to Kenton Hall, my guest today, who is the author of Bisection a more or less accurate account of bipolar parenting and twin wrangling, and we are getting to the parenting and twins. Um, but first, but first, there you are sitting at the in the hospital, having your wrist stitched after a suicide attempt, and um, and I found that really fascinating about how what you were saying about the doctors being really judgmental. Um, because one of my pet peeves is how bad doctors are especially psychiatrists, although I would imagine that, that wasn't, those weren't psychiatrists who were stitching you no. up. At least I hope not. But um, after, after you got stitched up, I presume there have been times when you have been an inpatient in a psychiatric hospital. Did, I mean, did they just send you on your way, or did they have you uh, come into the hospital? Um, this is... I, I've had a weird experience is that, that I've, I've never spent an enormous amount of time as, as an inpatient, usually because I've run into doctors that I have a, a strange thing that happens. I, I genuinely had one psychiatrist who had to do a home visit tell me he wasn't going to section me because I didn't want to be in the war because it was full of crazy people. Genuinely, that's verbatim. I think he was trying to... But what's happened a lot with me is that because I'm very verbal... It's the last thing that goes. So uh, it's almost like a safety switch. And I can be delusional, um, and, but I can, become, I can become very lucid in, in what I'm saying. And sometimes it's been mistaken for, all right, well, he'll be better off if we just put him on some meds or we'll just have him come in as an outpatient. And usually I've, mm-hmm. I've desperately needed hospitalization because within a couple of days there's been another incident. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So I talked myself out of a lot of hospitalization, which should have been indicative of the fact that I was ill because I was talking myself out of the help that I actually needed. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I also, and I apologize to all psychiatrists and therapists for this, but I am a terrible, without medication, I am a terrible manipulator of therapists. The mm-hmm. minute anyone said anything to me that I took against, I would just start putting all of my storytelling gifts to play in just saying what I thought they wanted to hear. It was very unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, now that I kind of have a little bit more clarity, I can see it for what it was, which was just trying to rega- retain control of the situation. Um, and I was very down on therapy for a very long time because the minute I had someone in front of me that didn't understand, wrote them off completely. And I think that probably happens yeah. a lot. I think particularly if you are suffering from any kind of messianic symptoms from bipolar, you can, it can, be, you can be very difficult to impress. Um, and yeah. you can also be very suspicious and paranoid about strangers and friends and everyone. Um, so, yeah, I, work, I worked against myself numerous times. Well, and, and, and also there's, um, I don't know whether... Whether you experience this, but a lot of times people, doctors, psychiatrists, um, think that people with either bipolar or schizophrenia uh, just just give them medication, don't try to talk to them and analyze them because that won't help, which is very wrong. It does help. Absolutely, because that acknowledges the person underneath. Now, I am pro-medication when in, when it's needed, and I couldn't. I couldn't function without medication. I've tried both. I, I did 15 years of telling myself I had coping strategies and just had breakdown after breakdown, but convinced myself that I had it under control. And it wasn't until I finally had a breakdown about three or four years ago, and which was very different in its tone because I was sort of turning 40 and there wasn't so much time to rebuild and I had bigger responsibilities with growing children that I went on medication almost as a last ditch effort. And this time I was like, they got my medication right. And all of a sudden these mm-hmm. clouds that had been sort of over my psyche for a decade and a half lifted. And I actually could see what was going on with some clarity and it changed my whole approach to everything. But I mm-hmm. do know mm-hmm. that not everyone needs medication. And that if you give it out like candy, the first time I was medicated, it nearly killed me because they prescribed, um, well, I'm trying to think what it would be over there, Paxil, would it be over there? The Ciroc that here. Yeah, but certainly it was, it was an SSRI in the early days for someone with bipolar, which meant that it removed all of my inhibitions and tended to lead to more manic episodes and suicidal yeah. episodes than it helped. And that scared me off medication because that was the first time where I really felt like I was losing my mind. So I, uh-huh. just, I, I left medication behind, but it was like I was growing scar tissue around myself the whole time is that I was having knockback after knockback and that just became my norm. And so uh, delusional thoughts and periods of acting out or making poor sexual decisions and making poor financial decisions. I just told myself that I was an idiot. Um, 
and not and I was, but <laughs> just not entirely. I didn't. I was losing track of what was symptoms and what wasn't. And I think you made an interesting point about doctors not including therapy because I think my case is quite illustrative of the need for both because I have an extraordinary amount of trauma that would respond to talking therapies. And I do have a chemical imbalance, which makes those things even more difficult to navigate. But if you say, because I'm bipolar, that I wouldn't benefit from sort of more emotionally-led therapies, then what are we doing about all of the trauma and the stress that flared my disorder up in the first place? It is, you know, you just have to take a holistic approach with these things and approach it from an individual's point of view, because coming back to it being an individual human being is... That's what will kill yeah. stereotypes is constantly reminding ourselves that it's a person, an individual person. Yes, and that, that kind of thing, what you, just, you know, these early um, experiences with medication, the wrong medication, or not seeing a psychiatrist frequently enough who can change the dose or change the medication yeah. itself, or starting, I mean, you know, obviously giving an antidepressant to someone who's manic depressive can often put them, push them into a manic phase. Um, That's right. But just to, I just want to, I, I hope you didn't, um, I hope I was clear, I, I don't know if I was clear when I, before when I was saying about therapy, um, you know, for manic depressive bipolar illness, um, you need both the right yeah. medication, um, which, which actually typically needs changes all the time because people Absolutely. go through the different cycles and the psychiatrist needs to be seeing them enough to, um, to be able to catch it before it goes into either a severe depression or a um, a very hyper manic state, but but we're we're going to be running out of time, and I didn't ask you anything about parenting. So just <laughs> could you tell us about yeah. what it was parenting like is hard. Parenting. Uh, <laughs> I I parenting is the best and hardest thing I've ever done. It is it's incredible chance that I've had with my twins to see life through their point of view, and for someone who has struggled to maintain a really strong grip on reality, their reality has been a real sort of safety net for me because I've been able to see the world through their eyes and that has helped me to maintain my own view on reality, partially from the panic of I've got to keep these idiots alive, I've got to give them food and get them dressed. And I have been single for a lot of that process, not not without the other parents' involvement, um, absolutely as a co-parent, but on my own in a house with two um, very, very lively, bright, and sneaky uh, daughters, um, when, when you're already trying to work your own brain out, can be challenging. But they help me keep uh-huh. my sense of humor through all of that trauma, because I can't help it because they're hilarious. Um, and they've been a good reason to keep revisiting whether I'm looking after myself sufficiently. Um, and yes. I find that very helpful for me. But uh, you've done a, re- a real favor because now if they want to hear more about the parenting stuff, they're going to have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you find yourself, I mean, first of all, I was thinking how much fo- more fortunate they are than you were because, um, you know, they, you have so much more insight about your illness than your father did about his um, and also so much better control over it. Um, but do you find yourself ever looking at them? And, and like, let's say, you know, you were saying they were very funny and all that. 
you ever find yourself looking at them and thinking, maybe, maybe they're too funny? Could this be, could they be, did they inherit this from me? All the time. I, and and, I'm, and I find myself in that place because they're 17 and they're, one is very eccentric and one is very dramatic. Um, they've taken my personality in half and had one half each. And you do worry because I still looking at them going, well, I don't know what regular emotions are supposed to look like. I've, I've never really had a firm grasp on what is acceptably low and acceptably high when you're a teenage girl. Because back when I was a teenage mm-hmm. girl, I didn't know. <laughs> and, I, and I was a teenage girl. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, you know, I, was out, I was out in the fields making daisy chains and reading Oscar Wilde. All the girls in my uh-huh. school were much butcher than me. But, yeah, I don't really actually know what it's supposed to be like for a, a neurotypical person. So I'm constantly having to figure out what the boundaries are. I hope so far I've not seen any evidence yet that they are suffering from it. And to me, that's, that's the point at which I feel that, you know, I would immediately go and get them help and use. But, I, but they've had friends. They've had friends, close friends um, that have been gone through mental health issues, and it has been heartening to see how well they handle those because they know of my history and because I've been very open about talking to them, is that they treat other people who are suffering with mental health conditions very, well, they treat them like everyone else, and they're very sensitive to their needs, and they never treat them as though there's something wrong with them. And I think that's mm-hmm. possibly the greatest gift that I've passed down to them is the empathy that I've learned over the years of dealing with what I've been dealing with. And if I've given them empathy as a gift, I feel like I've kind of done half the job right there because the world is horribly short on it. Um, yes, absolutely. So I do think that's absolutely. one thing that if you are aware of your mental illness, that you can, it can give you empathy for the fact that out there there's 7 billion people all dealing with a different version of how difficult it is to live in this universe, mental illness or no. And I think when you really have sort of analyzed yourself out of survival instinct, you can realize that all those people are going through the same level of stuff, regardless of what their particular crisis is. And I think it can actually make you think about other people more. Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, we are unfortunately uh, coming to the end. We are at the end, at the end. Um, of our time. I want to thank you again, Kenton Hall. Delightful. The book is obviously um, delightful as well. Um, we, yes, people will have to buy the book to uh, get the rest of it. I've done my job. Uh, and, again, and again, the name of the book is Bisection. Uh, and the, it fits so well with the cover. You ha- there's the cover, I presume it's you, um, it is, with yeah. one half of your face uh, looking depressed and one half looking sort of manic. <laughs> happy, very happy. Uh, again, the book is Bisection, a more or less accurate account of bipolar parenting and twin wrangling. So thank you so much, Kenton. I wish you all kinds of success with your book and with your life and with your girls. And, and it sounds like, yes, you are on more than the right foot. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 